Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So I don't know about anybody else, but I feel like we never left Christmas because during the shutdown, Washington feels like it's still a holiday. You can get a seat like at any restaurant. In fact, restaurant week has been extended. Right. There's no traffic coming right. to work. Right. It's actually really sad. I got on a, a flight the other day and I went through through the TSA checkpoint and the guy, uh, the TSA officer asked me how I was and I, I said, no complaints. How are you? And he looks at me and he goes, well, I, I got some complaints, <laughs> but, but, but maybe I should keep them to myself. Aww. And I just looked at him. I said, thank you for your service, sir. Wow. Uh, no, it was ugly. I, mean, I, that- I do think, though, that like, so this is where a lot of Americans who don't otherwise come into contact with the federal government are coming into contact right. with the federal government. And right. like, you hear all these stories of people being super polite to TSA agents because they're, they know they're working without pay. And I just think like... It took a government shutdown for Americans to be nice to TSA agents. Yeah. Wait until it takes a government shutdown for people to appreciate the IRS for the first time. Yeah, that too. Coming soon. Oh. Uh, a refund check not coming soon to oh. a mailbox near you. Well, meanwhile, as we've been getting ready to tape, the president has really started to feel the sting of the, sh- of the shutdown because I just got an alert that Nancy Pelosi has disinvited him actually formally from the House and told him he's not welcome in the House while the shutdown, to give the State of the Union while the shutdown she is She literally going said on. he's not welcome? I don't have the wording in front of me, but that's basically what she said, yeah. It's like you're having an, an uninvited, unruly dinner guest. It happens. He's an uninvited co-conspirator. <laughs> no, it's, it's like when you come home and your teenager has not done their house chores, and so you tell them that they may not come out to dinner with you. It's just like it. It's just like that. <laughs> I'm still hung up on uninvited coping. Yeah. That should have been our title. Huge missed opportunity. Okay. All right. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the what we were going to call it the bombshells and Change busts it. edition. Change it. <laughs> <laughs> the uninvited co-conspirator edition. <laughs> it's the disinvited co-conspirator. The disinvited. The disinvited. <laughs> no, I think it's got to be uninvited. Just just well, he for was invited. So. Yeah, and then he was yeah, uninvited. Okay, uninvited. okay. I'm I yield. I'm going to change that right now. I'm going to go ahead and I'm just, we're just going to make the show page the uninvited co-conspirator edition. You guys, that's one of our better ones so far yeah yeah yeah. i like that gotta right. roll with it we should improvise more don't you think we do we <laughs> really we've got it every week so planned <laughs> and scripted somebody asked Let's me once they were like up, you guys they're like so how do you prepare for the show and i'm like you know a couple hours before we just thought we want to talk about it we just go talk about it but it's um, yeah. Define prepare. It gives it that authentic <laughs> feel that <laughs> listeners crave. Uh, well, we have all been invited here, and we showed up. Although I don't have a glass of scotch, so somebody better 
uninvite invite that for me. Here you go, man. Thank you get so you get much. the war on the rock scotch. Oh, nice. Glass. I am Shane Harris here in the jungle studio with Ben Wittis, Tamara Kaufman Wittis, and Susan Hennessy. Hey, Shane. Hey, Woo. everybody. And popping the corks. It's just grape juice. <laughs> It's not grape juice. It's a very special kind of grape juice. It's LaFroy grape juice. (laughs) It's the shit. On the show this week, BuzzFeed drops a bomb that turns out to be more of a dud. Or is it? The president's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, could be doing more harm than good. And Congress takes aim at the administration's Russia-friendly policies. So let's start with the the BuzzFeed story. I will briefly recap, although probably most of our listeners don't uh, need the uh, the previously on segment you, here. You might have heard about this. You might have heard about this. Here or there. When the world stopped turning on its axis for a brief afternoon. Uh, so on January 17th, BuzzFeed reported that President Trump, quoting from their lead, directed his longtime attorney, Michael Cohen, to lie to Congress about negotiations to build a Trump Tower in Moscow, according to two federal law enforcement officials involved in an investigation of the matter. I emphasize an because we'll probably come back to that. Mm -hmm. Uh, This immediately uh, set off talk of impeachment. You could kind of feel the impeachment train starting to like chug out of the station for obvious reasons. This was the most, I think as you guys put it on lawfare, unsubtle and unambiguous allegation to date that Donald Trump had committed felonies. So then that it wasn't extraordinary enough the office of the special counsel spokesperson the next day issued a statement, which uh, he has never done about a piece about of anything journalism. Ever. Right. <laughs> so he has issued a statement in response about... to a Trump transition letter accusing them of something. Okay. Right. Not actually never not in a response story. to a news article. Correct. Uh, in fact, I think this is an important point to emphasize uh, that all journalists covering Russia probe know is that it, it is a known condition that the Office of Special Counsel will not even respond with a comment when they know the story that you're about to write or have published is incorrect. They so won't tell you. They will not tell you. Well, they will not They will not respond to it. And even the kind of the – we can talk a bit more about you know, the back and forth that goes on. But it's safe to say that the Special Counsel's office is not really there – uh, to respond to try to correct reporting that's been published. They just don't do that. So if there is something that's been published that has an error in it, it's understood that that just lives on. So it was incredible that they actually commented on it after it was been published. And they said, quote, BuzzFeed's description of specific statements to the special counsel's office uh, and characterization of documents and testimony obtained by this office, which were discussed in the article, regarding Michael Cohen's congressional testimony are not accurate. Um, Cohen uh, then said he was going to testify before the House Government Reform Committee on February 7th. He has now pulled back on that. Maybe we'll get to that in the segment too. But suffice to say we are now in this position where for an afternoon it seemed like the world understood that we might be heading towards impeachment. And then Bob Mueller seemed to come out and pretty dramatically pump the brakes on that almost as a way of signaling hold on here. Ben, kind of situate us where we are right now. And from your perspective covering this, I mean, do you think that the BuzzFeed story has been debunked and we kind of have to move on from that? Or are there still lingering questions about their reporting and even maybe about the special counsel's statement itself, which some people tried to say was ambiguous? Right. So a few things. First of all, 
people are using the name BuzzFeed to describe, you know, sort of something faintly disreputable because BuzzFeed is a cat videos, uh, is cat right. videos and listicles, and, listicles right. and but the reporters uh, and BuzzFeed News, by the way, is what we're talking about here, right? And and, and specifically, the reporters who did this story are two reporters with a track record on this story that is uh, very substantial and very serious. We talk and, about them a lot on this show. And we, yeah, and, and we've talked about you know things that they've broken multiple times. For those of you who listen to the Lawfare podcast, Anthony Cormier has come on uh, the Lawfare podcast a number of times to talk about breaks that he's he and Jason have had. So I, I want to start with the proposition that these are uh, very serious people with a track record of very serious journalism in this space and on this story up to and including very clearly having access to law enforcement sources that the rest of the press does not have access to, uh, one of which sources recently got arrested for leaking material apparently to them. Uh, a woman who works for the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. No, they haven't confirmed as a source, but go ahead. Well, so, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was a source for somebody. She was a, a source Just for saying, Officially, BuzzFeed News has not confirmed she's a source. But. Correct. So the, on the other hand, you have a truly exceptional statement by the special counsel that can be read narrowly to dispute individual components of what BuzzFeed uh, reported or can be read more broadly as the Washington Post reported in a story over the weekend as a broader repudiation of BuzzFeed's story. BuzzFeed has stood by its story in not just in general, but it has not backed off any particulars of it. And so I think at this stage we have uh, a standoff uh, intellectually f by people of actual reputation and track record in which it is simply unclear from the outside, and I, I do have my instincts about what the reality is, but I, I think from the outside, we actually don't know. And my gut is that the right answer will emerge over the next few weeks as other news organizations continue to probe both the question of what, in fact, the president's interactions with Michael Cohen were, i.e., did he direct him to lie? That's the underlying substantive question, as well as to what extent was evidence of those whatever contacts and directions there were presented to the special counsel? And would I be surprised if the answer were BuzzFeed's story is entirely wrong? Yes, I would be surprised if the answer were that BuzzFeed's story was entirely wrong. Would I be surprised if the answer was BuzzFeed's story is entirely right and Bob Mueller was lying in that statement? Yes, I would be surprised if, if that were the case. Uh, so my guess is the real question is not, is BuzzFeed's story right or not? The real question is going to be which aspects of BuzzFeed's story is flawed and how? 
I agree with that. I do. I, I would come down on saying I don't think that Mueller would release this kind of statement because he was quibbling over technicalities, right? Clearly, it, we don't know what in, in sort of precisely they're disputing, but I would be pretty surprised if they took this big of this big of a step because you know the wrong person was described or they got this information not directly from Cohen but somebody else. I, I think they would only do something like that if if something relatively significant. Can, uh, can I- can I ask off. you a question about mm-hmm. that? Because one thing that I have, as I've tried to reconcile the reporting with the Washington Post TikTok with Mueller's statement, one possibility that keeps coming into my mind is that the president directed Michael Cohen to file the letter knowing that it contained false information, not that he directed him to include false information in the letter. Do you think that would be to the mind of the special counsel's office, would that be a, a sufficient statement as to jet warrant uh, the statement that they issued, a sufficient error as to warrant that statement? Or would that be quibbling over over technicalities? No, I think that that would be a significant enough error to warrant the special counsel's office uh, issuing a statement like that. Because that is, while it is obviously an incredibly significant piece of information, it is legally something quite distinct. And so I could see them saying, look, there's a big difference between directing someone to lie in an immediate sense versus coordinating on a statement that was false versus knowing that false testimony was sort of out there. There's a lot of shades of that. And and I think the other piece is the sort of the big bombshell of the BuzzFeed story was not Cohen's allegation. It's that there was there was corroborating evidence. There was this document, uh, you know, other documentary evidence. And so I, I also think that's one of the most significant things because, look, we don't expect Michael Cohen to be uh, an incredibly reliable witness as people who are convicted of making false statements often are not incredibly reliable witnesses. When I get convicted of making false statements, I expect you to stand by my subsequent reliabilities. It's true. <laughs> Prosecutors can refer back to this uh, to this podcast. I do think, though, that Mueller is responsible to a change in circumstances, and that's that Dems are in control of the House now. And this was the first major consequential story that has come out since Nancy Pelosi got the gavel. And so that meant that even though we had these big bombshell stories coming out in the past, in terms of actual action, we had Congress kind of being like, mm, well, uh, you know, looking around, kind of ignoring it. Nothing was really happening. And so I think now we're seeing the consequences of Dems controlling, you know, one house of Congress and the kind of momentum that starts to build over things. And so I do think that a little bit, you know, Mueller is in a different world now in terms of how they are going to respond to these stories. You know, that said, I think that I think you're right that the big substantive questions are, one, whether or not the president had any communication with Michael Cohen in advance of this testimony. Now, Rudy Giuliani essentially like suggested as much. Now, I don't know how Talk reliable about witnesses with oh, yeah. credibility. Right. I, we'll get to him. <laughs> who knows how reliable he is and we'll get we'll get to him later, but right Giuliani himself sort of uh, you know put that on the table. You know, then I think the other question is, that has been out there all along, but nobody has, this is sort of a clarifying moment to ask it. And that's, Michael Cohen made this testimony public. Did Donald Trump know that the testimony was false? What, did Michael Cohen brief him on uh, on the Trump Tower Moscow deal? 
up until a later date than the one that he submitted in the testimony. Now, remember, in Michael Cohen's own plea agreement, he said that he briefed Trump administration officials, I believe, up to June 2016 as the last date. So, you know, reportedly, maybe we're, we're as late as December on some reporting. Wait, Trump administration, Trump organization. I'm sorry, Trump yeah. organization okay. officials. Sorry, that's a, a critical distinction. Um, and so I do think that, right, the, the, the idea that the president of the United States would know that his personal lawyer was submitting false testimony consistent with the story the president himself had made. If he read it, right? Or if he was briefed on what the testimony was going to be. If he read it, although it's, you know, we're getting to the point where it's incredibly difficult to believe that the president wouldn't know uh, and that his lawyers would not have discussed and that other people who are not capable of testifying wouldn't be able to discuss the fact that they have doesn't this the president, though, I can't remember if they, well, if this is where Rudy money the waters too, but the president could always say, Oh, I don't agree with Michael's interpretation that we were talking about this into to summer of 2016. Of course, Rudy now says it could have been as late as like the fall of 2016. But I mean, to me, that's the criti- one critical question here is like, what is what's President Trump's liability if he knew that Michael Cohen was going to give a false statement? So I think it's it's a similar liability that Bill Clinton faced, right? So Bill Clinton did not direct Betty Curry to lie. Bill Clinton said we were never alone together, right? Nudge, nudge. And so that was whenever both parties are aware that it's a materially false statement and it's submitted, that is obstruction. Now, I think to, to sort of, for the legal question, the actual coordination might be significant, but I don't think it necessarily hinges on did he direct him to lie? I feel like we need to take a step back because the three of you are all making diagnoses based on assumptions about the facts that we cannot know. There are just a ton of ifs here, which is precisely what's so challenging about living in this moment where Mueller hasn't completed his investigation and uh, and now we have a news report and we've been relying on reporters to uncover pieces of the story and now we have a news report, the veracity of which, or at least the details of which, are in question. There's All of what you're talking about is useful, but also only useful once we know the facts, which we don't know. And so taking a big step back, it, it strikes me that um, number one, there is somebody who knows the accuracy of this BuzzFeed story, and that somebody is Michael Cohen. Okay, the fact that Michael Cohen hasn't said anything about this seems to me significant. He hasn't come out and said they got it wrong. He hasn't come out and said, "Yes, I confirm that this is true." So the question is why, and it it seems to me there are a couple of possibilities. One is that he's, you know. Uh, concerned in some way about his interactions with the special counsel's office and with the courts. And so, you know, maybe Mueller has asked him not to speak about this. Right. But then he was scheduled to give this congressional testimony, as you said, Shane. And the fact that he's now decided not to do it, he says it's because of threats to his family by Donald Trump. Um, But maybe it's also, you know, as you said, Susan, this is a different environment for Mueller We've had questions from the very beginning of this investigation of how Mueller's investigation interacts with congressional investigation. If Mueller sees Michael Cohen testimony to Congress at this moment as interfering with what he's trying to do on a criminal on the criminal side or just on the investigative side, couldn't he tell Michael Cohen delay that testimony? And, you know, one way or the other. We will find out eventually what Michael Cohen knows and hopefully what Bob Mueller knows. Um, 
But it seems to me the only way we're going to find out soon, Ben, is if Michael Cohen testifies to Congress. And that may not, in fact, happen. So this could be not a dud of a story, not a bombshell of a story, but this unexploded ordinance right. that sits there and we're all standing around it waiting to see if it blows up. And one thing I, and on that, too, that I and, and is sort of, you know, Michael Cohen can correct this vein. Something that puzzled me from the very beginning when the report came out and I associate myself with Ben's comments about Jason and Anthony and the just tremendous reporting that they've done. So I, you know, I, I, you know, I put a lot of confidence in them. Is if this were true, why is Michael Cohen going to prison for three years? In other words, if Bob Mueller was told, if Michael Cohen, as the story says, told Bob Mueller, the president of the United States suborned perjury, I can show you the goods on this. And Bob Mueller has this information to back it up. Why is Michael Cohen not screaming that from the rooftops at his plea and allocution? Why isn't in the plea deal? Why is he getting three years when he asked for none uh, and he could have gotten five? I mean, it just so – I mean, Ben's over here waving. But I raise this partly to set you up. But like that really struck me as you are – this story is saying you just handed Bob Mueller, the president of the United States, like on a freaking platter. Like why aren't you like going home with the thanks of a grateful nation if if that's what you're you know giving up and, and you've flipped and you're cooperating? All right. So I, I think that's exactly the right question. And let us now consider that question with an eye toward the most favorable understanding of the BuzzFeed story as we can. So that is the body of it is true and maybe Mueller has quibbles over how much Cohen told him, what evidence they had, corroboration, etc. That would explain why Mueller's sentencing memo with regard to Cohen is dramatically friendlier to Cohen than the Southern District of New York sentencing memo for Cohen was. Which was hostile to and Cohen. Th- and there is, yeah. a, there is a dramatic disparity you know, for a supposedly unitary executive branch to come in with two sentencing memos, one of which says, you didn't really cooperate very much. You didn't take full responsibility. You only cooperate in the way you want to. And the other of and which says, him a "Jerk, basically." Yeah, right. Yeah. And the other of which says, uh, "He gave us really substantial assistance." And it would also explain Cohen's sentencing memo, which was in fact consistent he with your zero, expectation. Right. He wants zero. He thinks he's got a really good case that he provided essential assistance. And so I think that could explain some of that. On the other hand, you could also read it exactly the opposite way and say, if he had come to Mueller with a version as dramatic as as BuzzFeed is now contending, Mueller would have come in there with a nuclear bomb sentencing memo that says, this is an essential witness. We need to defer all sentencing until the scope and, and full understanding of his cooperation is known. You know, can we please put the brakes on this until that? So I can argue that either way. Um, well, speaking of arguing things, let's move in now to our second segment, which is kind of an extension of the first, uh, which is I, I'm tempted to say the extraordinary things that Rudy Giuliani said in the press over the weekend, except he's done this now more times than I can remember, uh, where he goes out and he says something that on the face of it seems tremendously damaging and maybe even incriminating or inculpatory about the president uh, and Russia or obstruction of justice. And then issues a statement 
questionable whether he wrote it himself, that tries to walk it all back. And over the weekend, uh, what we had was uh, Rudy and I guess multiple appearances and interviews saying that it's possible that this discussion about Trump Tower and building it in Moscow, which is at the heart of the BuzzFeed story, went on well into 2016 and somehow even suggesting that maybe it was even through the campaign or the election, which, of course, would be pushing it even farther uh, than even Michael Cohen and his guilty plea said it had gone. Um, so then he has to walk it back. There are reports out now that Trump is reportedly furious at Rudy for stepping in it, although I'm a little skeptical because why hasn't he been angry the other umpteen times that he also did something like this? It raises a question, and Susan, maybe you can kind of take this on as a lawyer. And I want to even talk about whether Rudy Giuliani is actually the president's lawyer and what that means for practical, practical purposes. Is he doing more harm than good to his client, the president? Or is there some kind of strategy here uh, in this bewildering, uh, you know, uh, mix up of statements and walkbacks? So I certainly don't think he's helping Trump. I think he might be placing him at far more risk than people are even acknowledging in the sense that we may not think that Rudy Giuliani is acting as the president's lawyer, but for current purposes, his conversations with the president are privileged. Going on TV to talk about these conversations in a way that is anything less than incredibly careful is a really good way to forfeit attorney-client privilege not just for the comments that you're saying on TV, but the entire conversation, right? So there's a reason why lawyers don't do this. It generally doesn't work out well for their clients. You know, I don't think that there is a specific strategy. And I'm always uh, hesitant to credit sort of the president with this, like, you know, 12-dimensional chess game that he's playing. But I do think that Giuliani's role here is the kind of chaos muppet to just throw sand everywhere. And sometimes that's getting out ahead of a bad story. Sometimes it's creating confusion. Sometimes it's just creating a week-long talking point or a talking point that sort of dominates the Sunday shows that or like just isn't, belligerent. isn't quite substantive, right? And and I think it he does appear to sort of satisfy Trump's desire to fight back. And so I do wonder if the role he's playing isn't cover for the president, but cover for the president's real lawyers who are actually trying to to provide counsel to him and having Rudy on TV so the president can feel like somebody's out there doing something gives them the space to actually, you know, sort of serve his legal interests. You know, that said, I, I do think we kind of have to ask ourselves because Giuliani is making, you know, sometimes really substantively significant comments like, did the Trump Tower meet, uh, M Moscow deals extend up to the day uh, Trump won, right? I mean, Giuliani offered what he said was a direct quote and then is like, oh, I was talking about a hypothetical. I think hypothetical you have to, right, court. exactly. <laughs> I, I think we have to ask ourselves, like, should we credit Rudy Giuliani at all, right? right? Is there... Do you just ignore him? Do you take a sort of like statements against interest approach that if he says something that's bad for the president, that you can take seriously? I do think that there's sort of a question, and this isn't a legal one. Honestly, it's a media one to like throw it back at you, Shane. Yeah. Like what are we supposed to do? do with his statements? This is actually something that I mean, I've discussed with colleagues and I'm sure people all across newsrooms in this city have been discussing. 
And the easy answer is he's the president's lawyer and therefore you have to talk to him, right? And therefore you have to listen to what he has to say. I go back to my question of is he really actually literally functioning in a legal capacity as a lawyer or is that actually being done by Jay Sekulow and other people and, you know, separate from the White House counsel's office, of course. He's but like a spokesman. He's like a spokesman. I mean, I think that on a, on a practical level, that is exactly right, Tammy. That's how he functions. He is somebody also who is the one who will go out there and just relentlessly fight for Trump and will throw things back. I mean, we, you know, Trump you know, famously said, where's my Roy Cohn uh, when he was looking at Jeff Sessions and how disappointed he was in the attorney general for recusing himself in the Russia probe. You know, there's an aspect in which I think Giuliani is like trying to serve the function of Trump's Roy Cohn, but he's just like, you know, a drunk just throwing punches. I mean, it, and he's hitting himself in the face with some of them. And it's not – I mean, Roy Cohn was a sophisticated actor uh, and, and it was somebody who really understood sort of the um, the public relations pugilism that goes on and how to do it. Rudy Giuliani seems to not appear to have any idea what he's actually doing. But what is Giuliani getting out of this? Well, yeah, exactly. He's not being paid – he certainly isn't increasing his reputation. Is it just an insatiable hunger for attention? So I have no ability to answer that question. I really don't understand it. Look, I remember during the Clinton uh, scandals and impeachment, the president was represented by a Williamson Connolly lawyer named David Kendall, who was menacing and ferocious in a genial sort of way. I mean, he, he, he's a... <laughs> smile the best cut tradition your, of lawyers throat. in Washington. He was, uh, as, as uh, the main character in, in Clueless said, the scariest kind of lawyer, you know. Um, but he was also quiet and reserved and careful. And uh, he didn't... Uh, he was certainly available to press, but he didn't do a lot of television interviews. And... Uh, if he had gone on television and made an admission against his client's interest, you would have had absolutely no doubt that, A, the admission was true, like if he had gone on and, and said, uh, actually, uh, the president did have sex with that woman, Miss Lewinsky, right? You would have no doubt that, in fact, sex had happened. And number two, you would have no doubt that if David Kendall made the admission, it was a strategic decision to release information in a defensive action on behalf of the client. And the same is true of you know, A.V. Culverhouse, who represented uh, Reagan in some of the Iran-Contra matters, you know, uh, as well as Ted Olson, who also did, right? I mean, the, the tradition of the president being represented at a level of quality that is such that when the president's lawyers would go on television and make an admission, you know exactly what to make of that is a very long one that Giuliani is disrupting at this point. And I don't know how to read the disruption, whether it's just like he's like, as Susan suggested, you know, uh, reveling in the attention or whether there is some throw dust in the air strategic component of it. But it is profoundly different from the way presidential lawyers normally behave. So I have a question for Susan and a question for Shane, I guess. <laughs> the question for Susan, like, 
I think your scenario whereby Rudy Giuliani is just smoke and mirrors while Jay Sekulow is actually the president's lawyer, like that's a fascinating image. And I guess, you know, does somebody acting in that capacity as the TV lawyer have attorney-client privilege? Like, is he acting as a lawyer? So that's that's my question for you. My question for you, Shane, is you said, like, okay, he's the president's lawyer. Even if he's the president's spokesman, the press needs to talk to the spokesman, right? Um, but when when journalists reporting on this matter call him for comment, are they calling him pro forma? Or are they calling him because they actually think he has information? Because one of the things I've found that's so striking is, first of all, he seems to spend most of his time talking to the media on TV. Um, but does that mean that print reporters are not taking him seriously and the cable channels are putting him on because, hey, he's good TV? I don't think I think it's um, an interesting academic question at what point he isn't functioning sufficiently as an attorney that uh, that attorney client privilege wouldn't attach. It's it's not a question that's ever going to be actually litigated. So I think it'll always be sort of an academic one. The one thing I think he could be doing is, you know, if the president's alleged lawyer or somebody that, that the president was identifying as one of his lawyers was going on television and making statements that were contrary to the written submissions of the president. If I was Bob Mueller, I think I might use that as an opportunity or a reason to say, no, I need to talk to the president. I need the president to clarify these statements because you submitted this, you sent this, you know, you you gave these answers, and now this guy's on TV. You, you're the one telling me he's your lawyer. I'm not trying to th- shove this down your throat. So what I need now is I need to hear from you whether or not this continues mm. to be your story. Mm-hmm. There are other sort of tidbits that Giuliani dangles out there, and this is why it is really hard to know how we should be treating this, including, you know, he gave this New Yorker interview in which whenever he's asked, how do you know that this is false in the beginning? He says, and I quote, because I've been through all the tapes. Right. I've been through all the texts. Lordy. <laughs> Where the interviewer says, the interviewer says, wait, what tapes have you gone through? He responds, I shouldn't have said tapes. <laughs> So it's sort of like if I'm a a federal investigator or a congressional investigator, I'm thinking, oh, there are tapes. There's a tape. (laughs) Right. And so that that a little bit cuts against my answer. You know, you're never actually going to be sort of, you know, subpoenaing or or attempting to, to force Giuliani to testify. But he does appear to be, you know, dropping these tantalizing little breadcrumbs for investigators. And I think for anyone who you don't have to be an opponent of the president, but just somebody who wants to get to the truth of the matter, it's hard to suggest that having Giuliani talk less is a good thing, right? It's sort of like, well, just put it all out there and we'll, we'll figure out what's real and what's not. Well, except except that we may have, he may be putting out a whole lot of stuff that isn't true. So he said the other day that the president hadn't committed collusion. Those are some other people in the campaign may have committed collusion. And everybody immediately responded to that as a bombshell. And, you know, who knows if he was just talking out of his ass? I think the both of you are actually asking, answering the question that, that Tammy asked me, which is that as, as much of a mess as Rudy is in terms of what he says and the way that he contradicts himself and sometimes the way that he frankly seems not to be in control of what he's even saying, which I have personally found troubling at certain moments. 
you kind of are in the mode as an investigative reporter of like just get as much information as you can and we'll sort it out. And the fact is he does talk to the president. He is close to the president. He's known the president a long time. And who's to say that Rudy might just one day open his mouth and drop something out like there are tapes and we find out there were secret tapes. You know, it's, but I think it's also – there's more of a, of a problematic approach to this I think for TV producers who put him on there and just kind of let him spout unfiltered and unstopped and unedited versus reporters who can talk to him. And believe me, reporters when they talk to Rudy Giuliani – have a nice big fistful assault uh, in the other hand for when they're talking but to him. I think this gets at one of the challenges, which is the ways in which the White House really is playing a game where everybody's pointing at someone else. Mm-hmm. So Giuliani says this stuff and then he just doesn't have a ton of credibility. But also then he comes out and says, well, I haven't really talked to the president about this. right?" So he actually operates in a world of plausible deniability for everything, mm-hmm. in part because part of the plausible deniability is just, well, Rudy Giuliani's crazy and has no idea what he's talking about. Then if you ask Sarah Sanders, uh, you know, for a statement from the president, she points to the, you know, she points to the president's private legal team. Then president's private legal team says, well, points to the president's tweet. And then right. And so it's you actually there is no source in which you can say this question has been raised about a factual matter. The president should know the answer to this factual matter. We want a comment from the White House. We want to know what the president's position, what is he saying happened? Because he's accountable to the American people on this. And actually, there is no source in which you can hold someone's feet to the fire and say, no, answer the question. And they have played that game really well. And Rudy has been a big part of facilitating that. That's a really good point. It's impossible to have accountability if you don't have any authoritative voice. Right. Maybe therein lies the strategy. Um, travel with me now down Pennsylvania Avenue <laughs> to the to the first branch of government. It is the first branch of government. It is the first article of the Constitution. Uh, so Congress is flexing its muscle on some big national security and foreign policy areas, particularly pushing back. I hesitate to use the word rebuke. That sounds so strong sometimes. Uh, against the administration's policies on Russia in a couple of key areas. Um, So the House passed legislation on Tuesday that would bar the president from withdrawing from NATO. Uh, 357 voted in favor. 22 members did vote against the legislation. Uh, Most of those are members of the Freedom Caucus and were supporters of President Trump. (laughs) Isn't it ironic? It's the Freedom from Foreign Entanglements Caucus. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's it's the it's the freedom from, from alliances that might protect your freedom. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> doesn't quite roll off the tongue, does it? Yeah. Uh, because this falls reports which we talked about last week that President Trump had said privately he wanted out of NATO, which would of course um, help Vladimir Putin achieve one of his lifelong dreams of breaking up the NATO alliance. Also last week, 136 House Republicans joined with Democrats voting to block the Treasury Department from lifting sanctions against three companies that are aligned with the Kremlin and that are controlled by the Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska, who we've talked a lot about on the show. So, Tammy, let me start with you, just kind of in broad strokes. Obviously, this is not the first time, but it's it's still rare that we're seeing Republicans in Congress you know, rebuke the president. We saw it most recently with the vote on military, U.S. military support for the war in Yemen following uh, Jamal Khashoggi's assassination. 
So are we again seeing kind of another crack in the wall here and Republicans standing up and saying, you know, Mr. President, you know, this alliance that you seem to be forming with Russia is just it's a bridge too far and it's not who we are? I think that that has been one consistent theme from Republicans on the Hill from the beginning of the administration, although generally speaking, the lead on that has been from the Senate, not from Republicans in the House, that Russia is some kind of bridge too far for them politically. Now, is that a matter of conviction? Because although they've been prepared to abandon the principles of the Republican Party and the conservative movement on a host of other policy issues, foreign and domestic, you know, Russia being bad and an adversary is just too fundamental somehow or too tied to Reagan on whose back they all continue to run for office. I mean, so is it is a, a matter of principle? Is it a matter of politics? You know, Russia is one foreign policy question on which you see really, really strong unanimity across party ID and public opinion polls. Americans don't trust Russia. They don't like Russia. And while Trump's friendly words about Russia have moved that a little bit among Republicans uh, in public opinion, still, you know, it's a big problem and Putin poisoning people and stuff doesn't help either. So, you know, I, I think it's going to remain a ground on which we'll see some Republicans continue to push back on the president. What to me is interesting is that I think it's going to be increasingly challenging for them to push back effectively. And that's for two reasons. Number one is that there used to be, they used to have allies in the administration on that, whether it was Jim Mattis or H.R. McMaster or whatever. And most of those people are now gone. We we learned this week that Wes Mitchell, the very well-regarded Assistant Secretary of State for Europe, is leaving. And he was one who was seen certainly on Capitol Hill as clear-eyed about the threat from Russia and more interested in maintaining sanctions and pressure on Russia over issues like Ukraine. So, you know, I, I think that it's hard for the Hill to be heard on foreign policy when they can't bolster lines of argument that exist within the executive branch. That's one reason I think it's going to be harder. The other reason it's going to be harder is because the Democrats control the House. Now, you would think that Democrats want to criticize Trump on foreign policy. So where there are Republicans who also want to criticize Trump on foreign policy, this would be a great meeting ground. But I actually think it makes it uh, less likely for uh, congressional Republicans to speak up because they know the Democrats are going to try and seize on every opportunity to beat President Trump about the head and shoulders on Russia. And they don't want to look like they are piling on with the Democrats against their own president. And in that context, I think that the vote on NATO in the House was very telling. The 22 members of the Freedom Caucus that weren't willing to stand up for the NATO alliance my head is exploding just uttering that sentence. Um, but why? Because the Freedom Caucus is the most stalwart part of Trump's base of support in the House. And these are people who know that where they come from, where they run, any daylight between them and President Trump does them damage. Yeah, so I think that's right. I think sort of it is stunning to see those 22 no votes in the House, but also, of course, uh, you know, I think the the more remarkable thing is that 
that's, you know, there's, there is daylight to, uh, supporting NATO actually creates daylight between you and the president. That, that itself is sort of, is insane, but. That um, is were, insane. There I were agree. none of those 22 names that I thought were, um, were particularly surprising. These are people who have, you know, um, subjugated themselves to this president from, uh, from the get-go and, and really some of, um, people who I think will be judged as among history's worst actors, although potentially not the most powerful. Um, you know, the only reason they haven't been more damaging is, is, you know, sort of their own impotence, including Jim Jordan's and Mark Meadows and others. I mean, really um, uh, just a shameful display. And I don't think there's any way to sort of move around that. Actually, I think the more um, challenging and complex story is the Senate vote, because I think what it shows is that Republican senators with this president are all are always at the risk of the White House essentially kneecapping them, right? So they take what is going to look like a little bit of a hard vote on the Deripaska sanctions because there is a plausible national security reason for this, that the way the sanctions were imposed was going to disrupt sort of global aluminum trade. And, you know, this hadn't been sufficiently thought through. And so there, there really was a reason why there needed to be modification. Um, there were reassurances offered from the White House and the Treasury Department that no, this actually is being tough. You know, we, we've extracted really, really sort of difficult and painful concessions from Deripaska. And so, yeah, although the, your newspaper, Shane, had a story today that cast a lot of doubt on that narrative. Exactly. And the, Times and, and the New York Times well, had yeah. one, um, I think, from Monday in which they found they um, they produced this binding confidential document. Um, and this is quoting from the paper, suggests that the agreement from the administration uh, may have been less punitive than advertised. The deal contained provisions that free him from hundreds of millions of dollars of debt while leaving him and his allies with majority ownership of his most important company. And so actually, it appears as though this might be a case in which the administration and the Treasury Department has kind of straight up lied to uh, to allies, Republican allies on the Hill, who've now taken this difficult vote. And so, you know, sort of the substance of it aside, um, although it shouldn't be because it's, it's in it's incredibly important. Just the notion that accepting this White House's word on anything about what their motivations are, about what's really happening, right? The kind of credibility that a White House usually needs all the time just to kind of get stuff done, especially in a re- the, sort of the murky place of national security and foreign policy where it's really – it's not always clear what's happening, there is always the risk that the next day on the front page of the Washington Post or the New York Times, there's going to be the memo in which the White House acknowledges that they were doing exactly the thing that their harshest critics accuse them of. And so I do think it'll be interesting to see, you know, Mitt Romney voted, you know, for lifting these sanctions. How long is Romney, how many times is Romney going to get pummeled by something like this and, and continue to vote along the president's line. And Ben, this strikes me as, I mean, when, when the way we, Susan is f- framing it, which I think can be described as Congress coming in to try and in some respects establish the credibility of the United States government, right, in the face of what I think clearly overwhelming numbers of members view as very uh, misguided policies pulling out of NATO, the way these sanctions were issued, plus the fact of, you know, pulling them. That strikes me as something very different than what we think of as traditional oversight, right? Oversight is to see uh, committees come in and question whether agencies are functioning properly, whether they're following the law. This almost strikes me as one branch of government trying to be a corrective uh, against another when it comes to, you know, I think how these members would see it is how, you know, what we stand for as a country. 
Is that? Oh, I, I think that? that's exactly right, and I actually think there's a there's a really deep point in there. So oversight is the assumption that Congress should watch over the executive in the executive's performance of its job, right? It is an the assumption in oversight is that there may need to be policy adjustments in light of performance, or there may need to be performance enhancements in light of poor performance. This is something else. This is. We do not trust the substance of the of the ambition of the policy, and we want a a lever to push back and question the fundamentals of the policy, right? And it's a uh, you, you. I think you're quite right. It goes to the question. It goes to some some pretty deep questions of what the country stands for, and it also goes to some pretty deep questions that we have not really confronted in a profound way since the 1930s about which branch of government is ultimately in charge of foreign policy. And Matt Waxman, uh, our, our lawfare colleague who teaches at Columbia University, recently uh, published a really interesting on, article on lawfare about the so-called Ludlow Amendment, which is a constitutional amendment that nearly passes in the late 30s that would have required that the decision to declare war not merely be done by Congress, but be submitted to the people for a referendum. It was like a Brexit vote. Kind it would of always fail right. every time. Well, and that was the point, right? <laughs> it's, a, it's an after World War I isolationist era. If we're going to war, it's not enough to have a congressional vote anymore. We need to, we need to have an affirmative vote of the people. And, you know, Pearl Harbor, of course, ends this. And after Pearl Harbor, uh, the idea that the the preeminence of the president in foreign policy in post World War II American politics and constitutional law is really predominant. But the period before that is a period where Congress is really asserting itself, and Congress is a, is a major actor. And I think this question of to what extent is is Congress a co-equal voice or even a a voice, a real voice in the definition of the, not in an oversight sense, but in the definition of the core aims of U.S. foreign policy. The president says, screw NATO. And Congress says, no, don't screw NATO, right? This is who we are. This is the foreign policy of the United States. That's a very meaningful confrontation. I think it's a meaningful confrontation in the constitutional sense, in that domestic arena, as you were describing it, Ben. But I also think it's a really, really significant confrontation in terms of international politics, because what we have now with a president who is perceived increasingly by adversaries and allies alike as not just unpredictable, but unreliable, as capricious and unable to commit and uninterested in delivering on commitments. That presents a huge, huge challenge. And we see that both allies and adversaries around the world in different regions are responding to this and engaging in, you know, autonomous decision making as though the United States simply can't be counted on. Congress can act somewhat to mitigate that by being a distinct independent voice of American foreign policy to the rest of the world. 
And, you know, I think it's challenging for members of Congress and congressional leadership to do that at a moment when the government's not open and the economy is starting to suffer and Americans want them focused on what's going on at home. It's not like they can go get on airplanes and fly around doing the diplomacy that the Trump administration is seemingly incapable of doing. But they can try. And but with votes like the like the votes over the last couple of weeks, they do send signals. Foreign governments and foreign companies and others take note of that and respond. And so it's important for the Russian government to see that there's a congressional majority to constrain Trump's ability to, you know, reset a relationship with them. It's important for NATO partners to see that Congress stands behind this alliance and that, you know, one day when there's someone else in the White House, the policy may look very different. It also helps them hang on and not make dramatic policy changes themselves in response. And for all of that, and here's my last sentence, this is why to me it's very upsetting and troubling that President Trump is seeking to use executive authority to constrain congressional travel by, for example, saying that the military can't support visits by the House majority leader to a war zone. She should be going out there and talking to the leadership in Afghanistan and Iraq. She should be going to the Munich Security Conference. We have a president who's incapable of conducting a serious foreign policy. Whatever your policy preferences may be, foreign governments don't believe him anymore. And that's a huge problem. And so we need other people who can do that credibly. And the leadership of Congress are people who can do that. All right, let's move on to object lessons. Uh, I'll go first since mine is sort of continuing theme. Uh, <laughs> my object lesson actually is the new national intelligence strategy. Which strategy, was, strategy, strategy. We still have one of those? We have That's one. Nice. Every four years we, we get a new one. We have all like kinds of strategies. <laughs> well, we have another one, uh, which uh, the DNI Dan Coates just put out yesterday. Uh, and under the heading of strategic threats, which is the first section, in the very first paragraph – the National Intelligence Strategy on behalf of the Intelligence Committee warns about strategic threats posed by adversaries who, quote, exploit the weakening of the post-World War II international order and dominance of Western democratic ideals and later the increasingly isolationist tendencies in the West. So that's what they led with. Whoa. Um, you know, <coughs> Russia – sorry – uh, they actually didn't say <laughs> Donald <Russia>. Trump. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just actually found that quite extraordinary. Now, in remain keeping, calm. Remain All calm. is well. <laughs> <laughs> calm down and enjoy the ride. <laughs> uh, um, I, 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 I do point out that this is in keeping with a clear policy shift that has been announced and articulated by people like Dan Coats and Gina Haspel, the CIA director, about shifting intelligence community priorities towards nation-state threats. Um, but this also does echo language in the intelligence community's assessment from 2017, which said that one of Russia's primary reasons and motivations for interfering in the 2016 election was to challenge the Western-led liberal democratic order. And um, it's – I would also say I don't think the intelligence community is trying to be cute 
Um, but clearly it wants to go on record here saying that these trends of isolationism, it doesn't use the word nationalism, but I think it's clearly referring to that as well. It is striking that it says as far as we are shaping our policies and priorities for the next four years, this is the top of the list in terms of strategic issues that are shaping uh, our thinking. So uh, I wouldn't exactly call it a rebuke of the president, although it is a worldview that probably rebukes the president in his worldview uh, and was notable. Well, that's okay. He doesn't listen in the intelligence community anyway. He probably didn't read this. Yeah. Yeah. Susan. Um, so I have one. Um, so, you know, we've been sort of laughing a little bit about, uh, you know, the shutdown and the chaos that it's been causing. Um, but of course, everybody in this room all lives in Washington, D.C. And um, this is having a pretty profound impact on our neighbors. Um, and so I just want to, as my object, sort of highlight two things that are happening to kind of help people out um, who are being affected by the shutdown. Um, so the first is that there's tomorrow, which I guess will be today for some of you, January 24th from um, 7 to 8 at Hype Cafe on Pennsylvania Avenue. There is going to be a meal catered uh, for federal workers, but also contractors, Uber drivers, uh, janitors, nannies of furloughed workers, sort of anyone who's impacted by this, um, you know, just to come and get a meal. And, you know, it's just a token of gratitude from your community. And so um, people who want to do that should email shutdownmeals at gmail.com to RSVP. Um, they're hoping lots of people will do that. Um, and then the other is uh, the D.C. Diaper Bank, which is a really great organization uh, here in D.C., uh, is offering uh uh, from 11 to 1 on the 23rd, 24th, and 25th uh, at the World Central Kitchen in Archives uh, Navy Memorial Metro. Um, diapers for kids. Um, let me tell you, diapers are incredibly expensive. You know, and, and these are just little things, I think, that are tokens of how people are um, are trying to support each other and, and ease the burden a little bit. So anybody who's out there who's, you know, trying to, to get through this time, I know it's a, it's a tough one. Those are uh, little things that uh, people want to do to help. And, and so please do take advantage of them. Great. Thanks, Susan. Uh, Tammy? Okay. So it's that time of year when for a lot of Americans and probably a lot of rational security listeners, Sunday's about football. And there was a kind of a big game this past week and there's going to be kind of a big game in another couple weeks. And for those of you who are not football people, I, I'm not much of a football person, I have to admit. Um, I'm going to be in L.A., uh, doing a debate about American relations with Saudi Arabia during the Super Bowl. <laughs> so if any of you are you in LA, and who else? Right, mark your calendars, right? everyone. <laughs> Both attendees <laughs> will, will be riveted. Who are also participants. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, you guys. You just make me feel so good. We'll podcast it and listen to it immediately afterwards. <laughs> the, the Lawfare podcast for next week. Um, but I would like to thank the Hammer Museum at UCLA and the Hammer Forum for inviting me to this exciting discussion. On Super Bowl Sunday? On Super Bowl Sunday. During the Super hey, Bowl. So for anyone who's not like a football fan, Super Bowl Sunday is a great – go see like a hard-to-get play, yeah, restaurant reservations. <laughs> this city is your oyster friend. And if you have trouble getting into debates about the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, now is your chance. <laughs> it's, it's what I know you've been waiting Standing to do all room. year. Wow. <laughs> Lucky yous. Ben? Guys, I have the most awesome object lesson. Go ahead. Like, it's awesome. It's Rational Security Merch! Woohoo! Yes, we... Uh, you asked, you bet. You asked for it. You wanted it. 
You begged, you pleaded, and Joe DeFeo, Shane's wonderful husband, came through. Devastatingly with, handsome. Yeah. Amazing taste in men. And Incredibly talented. Go and, on, go and, and a great graphic designer and artist who draws, like, uh, paints zombies uh, and also did the uh, Rational Security logo that graces all your phones now. And we have uh, put up a range of, of Rational Security merch on the Lawfare store. So as part of our endless rollout of, of awesome new Lawfare-oriented products, you can now get Rational Security T-shirts, Rational Security mugs, Rational Security just about anything. Hoodies, like sweatshirts. Hoodies, Yeah. And so uh, go do it. Uh, all the proceeds uh, support Lawfare as an institution, which, uh, you know, we need. And go out and parade around in all the locations of life with your very own rational security object lesson. This does remind me of the best economist site Lawfare has gotten, which is Lawfare, a wonky legal blog, has become so popular that a merchandise section is selling Lawfare-branded baby grows, <laughs> which one, what the fuck is a baby grow? It's the British word for a onesie. That's ridiculous. I and know. Too, now we're expanding into rational security as well. So your baby grow can feature that's the right. security logo. But this is we, the first We're time. shameless. We sell out. We popularize. <laughs> sure. We are all over I'm going to have that. a baby just to get a onesie. <laughs> but this is the first a time. Baby that, no, not, this honey, is the first okay. time you, the listener, can have an object lesson. So That's right. You can be an object lesson. Exactly. So the next next week, uh, when, when you're listening to Rational Security, object lesson se- section, do it in your own rational security object. And send us a photo. Tweet it at us. Do it. Send at it to us. RATL security. At RATL security. And we will look forward to that. And we will look forward to talking to all of you again next week. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. Uh, you can find our show page and now great merch on the Lawfare website. Yeah. The, the Lawfare store. The Lawfarestore.com. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Yeah. So it's not on the Lawfare blog. It's on the Lawfare store. You know, it has its own. It has its own site so that it can like process payments and stuff. Okay, that's good. That's good. Just make sure it's not off on the internet someplace, Ben, where people can't get to it. No, no, it's not on okay. any site like uh, SpaghettiOnTheWall.com. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like that. You can follow us on Facebook. Of course, you can find us on Twitter at RATL Security. Please do send us your pictures of your merch, enjoying your mugs or your your grows. Or your baby t-shirts. It's it's like jumper for sweater, baby grow for onesie. It's, but it doesn't make any sense. I don't get it either. A onesie, but you know what? it's one thing. Just put it on and wear it. <laughs> Rational security get it tote bags. Tote bags. Don't forget the tote bags. Um, yeah, so get that. Audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Nancy Pelosi and her new Alanis Morissette cover band. What's it called? Do you get it? No, no, no. It's a reference. What? Somewhere out there, there are Alanis Morris fans, fans getting this. She not, recorded a song called I. Uninvited. Uh, oh. It's actually my favorite Alanis Morissette song. The band you little, have a favorite The Alanis band was Morissette a little tricky song? this week. Uh-huh. That was. Uh-huh. That's a finger. Yeah. There's a few out there going, You know what, though? The, the funniest jokes are the ones you explained. Yeah. <laughs> also the best. <laughs> Not as good, though, as Sophia Yan, who is playing us out right now. And uh, is invited and to is invited. anything. Anything you want, always. On behalf of my friends, Tamara Kaufman, Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>